I wouldn't say that we would be putting a facility together to rival the largest national lab in the country. But what we are putting together will be world-class and rival anything that other institutions in Canada and even in North America would have in terms of scientific infrastructure. Welcome back to NGB Ideas, a podcast about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in the Canadian life sciences sector. Hi, I'm Jim Wilson, and our guest today is Drew Markhart, Associate Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Windsor. You know, one of the great things about doing this podcast is that I get an opportunity to learn about what's going on behind the scenes within Canada's life sciences sector, and today's interview is another example of doing just that. Drew and his team are developing and applying neutron scattering strategies to study membrane structures and processes which is really cool, but what caught my ear is that he's also leading an interprovincial research team focused on boron neutron capture therapy, or BNCT. Now, if you're like me, you're not a research scientist and do not know much about cancer research, but I do know this. Each year, more than 3,000 Canadians are diagnosed with brain cancers like glioblastoma multiform or recurrent head and neck cancers, which are very difficult to treat. One of the most promising treatments for these cancers is boron neutron capture therapy, and when the BNCT project in Windsor moves forward, it will further entrench Canada as a North American and global leader in cancer research. My conversation with Drew was a result of my previous interview with Dr. Lisa Porter at the University of Windsor, who is a passionate advocate for all of the cool things happening on this side of the Detroit River. And she's right. If you've not taken a look at Windsor, you should. On a final note, before we jump into today's show, we would like to remind our listeners this podcast is supported by the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation and the TMX Group, and we're sponsored by Omniabio.com and Novanordisk.ca. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was recorded in 2023. Drew Markhart, thanks so much for joining us. Delight to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It'll be a lot of fun. It is, and I'm, I'm looking forward to jumping in, so let's do that. You were born in Peterborough, but I read you grew up in Palmer Rapids, Ontario. For those listeners who may not know, including me, where exactly is Palmer Rapids? Palmer Rapids is about 45 minutes outside of Algonquin Park. It's famous for its bluegrass twin festivals. That might be the only thing it's famous for other than me. A great small town, quite rural, love going back to visit. So it's between Algonquin Park and Chalk River area. Yeah, without getting out a map, Chalk River does border on the park as well, so it's not the same gate, but all within about an hour of each other. I understand that you've got a younger sister. What's her name, and how much did you aggravate her growing up, or vice versa? Her name is Sage, and she's about seven years younger than me, so an interesting dynamic. I would say we probably both somewhat grew up as only children. Because by the time she was of school age, I was getting ready to head out to university and so on. I had a big age gap between some of my siblings. I absolutely get that. I understand that your family has run a well drilling business for three generations. Yeah, so when we talk about Palmer Rapids being rural, everybody has their own drilled well to provide water to their home. And that was started with my great-grandfather, my grandfather ran the business, then my father ran the business, and 
he retired in the last 10 years from water well drilling. It was clear that I wasn't going to take over the business. Although I worked in it all, all through high school, I was a water well technician. I was, had all my hours in if I wanted to get my license, but I got the science bug and pursued this instead. Both of your parents ran the business? No, it, it was my father's business. My mother worked at a post office. Okay. I understand that when you were in elementary school, your father took you to Chalk River Labs for a field trip. And first off, could you explain to our listeners what the Chalk River Labs are exactly? So now they are considered the Canadian nuclear labs. But back when I went and visited, they were run by AECL, so that's Atomic Energy Canada Limited. And they hosted a multi-purpose reactor, the NRU reactor. And that nuclear reactor did research, both very fundamental, but also industrial research, looking at new materials for next generation power reactors, looking at fuel bundles, et cetera. It serviced the whole world in many respects because it had some unique qualities. And it also produced upwards of 70% of the world's medical isotopes. And so there was this impressive flagship piece of infrastructure there and my dad took me there on, a, I think it was probably a Friday. And as you can imagine, there's not an insane number of drop-in tours. And so we had quite a personalized visit. It was a tour guide, my father and myself. We got to go everywhere. Actually, we got to walk on top of the reactor. I'm sure we'll get to it, but years down the road, I worked at Chalk River at the NRU reactor. I had gotten to go places as a elementary school kid that people working there weren't allowed to go to and had never seen before because of rule changes that had happened between the late 90s and the 2010s. Wow. How old were you when you did that initial trip? Maybe grade seven. So whatever age you are at grade seven. That is so cool. Looking back, is that the incident that planted the seed and the interest in sciences, or was it before that? Well, I always had a, an interest in science and technology. But what it did do is it was the first taste of, I could be in the Ottawa Valley, work in the Ottawa Valley, my home, and still be in science. That might have been the seed that had been planted. You've got this world-class research facility basically an hour away. I read that you were the first one in your immediate family to pursue a post-secondary education. Was your decision to not follow the family's business a difficult one for you or for them? At the time, I was encouraged to go to university, get a degree. If after my degree, I wanted to come home and take over the business, that was perfectly fine. But I had the opportunity that my parents didn't necessarily have, and they wanted me to take advantage of it. I went to university, took a different career path than what I may have thought I was going to in high school. You went to Brock University in St. Catharines with a plan to become a high school chemistry teacher, but in your second year, you pivoted. What caused you to change your plans? In second year modern physics, the instructor, as with any professor, they like to go on rants about what their own personal research is. This particular instructor talked about his research and that he did it in Chalk River. And I'm sitting there, oh, I know where that is. And so after class, I went and saw him. I said, you know, I'm from the area. I'd love to do research, but I also would love to go home. 
Do you have any need for a set of hands all summer in Chalk River? That's a cool idea. And we chatted about it and, and worked out some of the logistics. And that summer, I spent the whole time working at the Canadian Neutron Beam Center. When I was in university, I was doing manual labor and working as a sales clerk in a clothing store. And you were working at the Canadian Neutron Beam Center in Chuck River. I think one of us went down the right path. <laughs> <laughs> you finished that, and you came back to Brock University that fall, and that's when you switched programs. What did you end up taking? So I was initially in Brock's Con Ed program, and in parallel doing the chemistry degree and education degree at the same time. And so what I did was I left the education part of the program and picked up physics and math courses that I could get a, a minor in physics and strengthen my scientific background in the research area I was pursuing. That would have been at the beginning of third year when I did that. So you finished an honors bachelor of science degree in chemistry in 2010 and decided to do a master's in chemistry, which morphed into a PhD in physics. Why that pivot? Entering grad school, firstly, my supervisor, he had said, you have to look elsewhere. You can't just stay with me, at least interview one other place. And then if you decide you want to stay, you can stay, but it has to be in the field of physics. So he wasn't eligible to supervise a chemistry student because he's a physicist. And she didn't want me to do some sort of hybrid program. He thought that it was in everyone's best interest if I had a home natural science department, so chemistry or physics. And so in order to stay, I had to enter grad school in the physics program, which I had to pick up some extra courses. And I'm not going to lie, the coursework was challenging for somebody that just had a minor, but we worked our way through it. And when Brock got approved for an accredited PhD program, I transferred into the PhD program at Brock. When I was doing my graduate degree at McMaster, I was told that universities like to see, for lack of a better term, variance in academic degrees. Did you at ever any point think that you were kind of like dating your academic sister by staying at Brock for all of your degrees? Was that something that crossed your mind? I don't know if I would necessarily use that analogy, but it absolutely did. And it was on my radar even before entering grad school. But my supervisor, who was Thad Haroon, he was the same individual from that modern physics class when I was in second year. He was very well connected in the neutron scattering field. He had been a postdoc in Chalk River. He had worked in Europe. His PhD was done in one of the most respected neutron scouters in the States. I had a network and didn't actually spend a lot of time physically at the university once my grad school research started rolling. I spent a lot of time in Chalk River. I spent time at Oak Ridge National Labs at their facilities. I did the pros and cons of the situation. It's probably frowned upon on paper in some ways, staying at the same institution for all the degrees. Practically, it made a whole lot of sense. Yeah. On the flip side, the connections that I made and the experiences I was able to have wouldn't have been possible at other universities. Hi, it's Jim. Before we get back to the show, please make sure you click the follow button so you don't miss any future episodes. So you spent a lot of time at Brock, but not all of your time at Brock. And 
Was there a large physics program at the time? I was the first PhD graduate from their program. How many students were in the PhD program at the same time as me? I'm going to say there might have been five graduate students. That's not massive, but I would say probably normal for a, a university of that size. Yeah, well, and it's quality, not quantity that counts. So you started your PhD in 2011 and spent time at Chalk River as a summer student and brought back a few memories, probably bragging to the people who used to dance in the reactor. In 2013, you were a visiting researcher at the uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Could you tell us a bit about your time there? I was able to, to travel on a Michael Smith foreign travel supplement that uh, you're eligible to apply for if you hold a graduate scholarship. And so I was there working with a postdoc. I slept in his living room <laughs> in my time there. Because I was Canadian, we got to take advantage of a lot of instruments and opportunities, especially over the U.S. Thanksgiving. It became a tradition, even after I was a graduate student, to go and run their instruments over the American Thanksgiving because I didn't know how to run them. They wanted to go home and enjoy their Thanksgiving with their families. My Thanksgiving is in October, so I didn't care. Yeah, it was a win-win for everybody. So it made a lot of good connections at Oak Ridge as my time there as a student that we've been able to leverage moving forward in my career. So you graduated from your PhD program in 2014, and it was three years from start to finish. That's pretty quick. I technically entered the master's program, I guess, in May of 2010. I didn't take any gap. I already had a year in when I transferred to the PhD program, and so the degree you're doing changed in 2011. I'm not going to lie. It's still on the faster side, but it's maybe not quite as impressive as the timeline you gave. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here for a moment, if I may. As an undergraduate, I understand you co-authored a research paper that became a pretty big springboard for you. And before we go there, you mentioned in your pre-interview that not one Nobel Prize has been awarded for work in vitamin E, but there have been 13 associated with cholesterol. Vitamin E recently had its 100th anniversary since it was discovered, but it's apparently still very much a medical mystery. I also understand you would welcome an opportunity to talk about it. So, let's do that. The floor is yours. Oh, I would never turn down an opportunity to talk about vitamin E. My group and I were just at a conference and got up to give my talk, and the title was Vitamin E, blah, 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 and one guy in the audience goes, oh, here we go, Drew and his vitamin E again. It's a cool problem. It's one of the only essential nutrients that we don't actually understand what its true biological role is. It's known that it keeps rats from procreating. Well, that's where its name comes from. Tocopher is, I believe, Greek to carry a pregnancy to term. Tocopherol is the chemical name of vitamin E. There's a lot of literature out there where people taking jobs at each other. It's an antioxidant and nothing more. And then others, it's yeah, it's not an antioxidant. We don't know what it is, but it's definitely not that. It's a cool space to do some work in because, one, it is a natural product. It's a vitamin supplemented. People need it. and So we need it, but we don't know why? To a large extent, yes. We know some of the conditions from a vitamin E deficiency, but that doesn't actually lead to what its true role in the body is. So obviously it's important, but what its role or roles are... I stress the S because I think that's the direction that the field is going, that like a lot of biomolecules serves multiple purposes. 
No, it's an interesting problem. I had a PhD student work on it that just graduated last September. His focus ended up pivoting towards the vitamin E acetate, which was believed to be the culprit in the e-cigarette and vaping-associated lung injury that was rearing its head just before the pandemic started. Really? Oh, it was it was a problem. The CDC in the U.S. were keeping track of cases. I remember that. But as I think everybody and all your listeners will remember, something happened in the, the winter of 2020 and the CDC stopped reporting everything except for the COVID cases. So there's work left to be done there. Lots of work. Whole career's worth and maybe a Nobel Prize. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like your university years were a bit different from perhaps your regular or run-of-the-mill experience. You were off campus perhaps more so than on, and you were flying in some pretty high circles. I'd like to think so. You enjoyed that time of your life? Oh, yeah. Grad school was a ball. I absolutely loved grad school. The people, the places? Yeah, the people, the places, the freedom. Once I had my scholarship, it really... Opened up doors and opportunities. Say, I've got this experiment. I'm going to go do it. And the supervisor, good, thanks. Let me know when you get back and we'll go over the data type deal. I was able to support a lot of that travel through the scholarship. Wow. You got a lot on the go. What did you do to blow off steam? Well, we played a lot of pickup hockey. You had a bad day. You had some bad research results and you took somebody into the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I was a goalie, so, you know, I get that. Make it look like an accident, a missed poke check, and somebody goes down, right? <laughs> I get it. So after you graduated from Brock, you worked as a postdoctoral fellow in the laboratory of George Papst at the University of Graz Institute of Molecular Biosciences in Austria. How did that come about? As we had chatted about this, again, I don't like your analogy, but I'm going to run with it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that if I wanted to get that faculty position, I had to show that I not just could travel intermittently from a safe place, safe as in, you know, where I'm comfortable, but that I could actually go and work in a very different environment and so on. And I had known Georg for a little bit of time, but we connected at a conference. He saw me give a talk and afterwards had a approached me saying that he had a postdoc position open and he'd love if I'd come and join his group. Weighed the different options at hand and it was a pretty good opportunity going to a a non-English speaking country to do science. They're very, very well known for x-ray. I'd always worked in neutrons and so their complementary techniques go to a group that was world-renowned experts in x-ray scattering. I good for my own growth as a scientist as well. And so I started October 2014 as a postdoc in Graz. You were in Austria for two years and then became a postdoctoral research associate in the biology and soft matter division at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and the Department of Physics at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So Austria to Tennessee. I'd appreciate you explaining what that move was about from a 30,000-foot level What did you do exactly? As with any postdoc position, they have a finite term. And so I knew going into the position in Austria that it was a two-year contract. As it was coming to an end, I knew I needed to have a job. I hadn't gotten a faculty position yet. Those connections that I had made as a graduate student at Oak Ridge 
I put those to work and went to Oak Ridge and served as a postdoc working on similar systems, but I was back in the world of using neutrons to do so. In some ways, going back to the techniques that I had done as a graduate student. So you were in Knoxville from January to June 2017. In July 2017, you came back to Canada to accept the position you currently occupy, which is Associate Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Windsor. Why did you come back to Canada, and how did you end up at Windsor? So coming back to Canada was always my goal. I don't know if I submitted any job applications for faculty position anywhere other than Canadian universities. My goal was always to come home. I was supported by the, the Canadian government as a graduate student. Their investment in me should pay off. From a professional point of view, like the right thing to do as well. Obviously, having grown up in rural Ontario, that coming home is always a good thing. As with any faculty position or individuals looking for faculty positions, the right position has to be open that aligns with what your background is. There was actually a position at the University of Windsor in their physics department that I had applied to a few months before I applied to the one in the chemistry department. And obviously I didn't get that position, but there was one in realm of lipids in the biochemistry stream of our department here. So I played up my research with lipids. Having being a neutron scatterer, that's pretty unique in the grand scheme of things. As with anything, somebody will Google it and show me I'm wrong. I always preface any concrete statements I make with that because there's always an exception. For many, many, many years, there had been no neutron scattering faculty hires in Canada. I was the first one in close to a decade. And all I'm saying there is to show how potentially unique having that skill set could be when entering into a faculty position. Now, after I was hired, there's been a, an avalanche across Canada of neutron scatters, and it's absolutely fantastic. The community has a really bright future with a lot of young researchers up and coming in that area. But coming back to your question or point about Windsor, the right opportunity, so lipids, and then you know having something that was unique that I could offer, that would be the neutrons, was part of the recipe for success. So it was a good fit. The timing was right. Hi, it's Jim. We hope you're enjoying today's show and would like to remind our listeners, NGB Ideas is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit, which is an in-person speakers event being held in Hamilton on the first Monday in October. The NGBI Summit is a networking event where attendees will hear talks from today's industry leaders and meet startups, executives, investors, and academics who share an interest in growing Canada's life sciences community. For details about the summit and to purchase tickets, please go to www.nextgreatbigideas.com. You're working on something that blows my mind. I'd like to talk about the Boron Neutron Capture Therapy Project. And I'm going to guess that it's not on the radar of a lot of people, but what is it? Okay, so before we get to the boron neutron capture therapy or BNCT, how I'm going to refer to it for most of the time, it's linked to a much broader problem or issue that material scientists and neutron enthusiasts like myself faced. And so we talked earlier about this NRU reactor that was in Chalk River. Well, it was shut down. It had served its natural life span and it was shut down. 
And so that left a gap in access to neutron beams for Canadian researchers and industry. This all happened in the spring of 2018. And so the neutron beam community was left with a bit of a resource gap. It turns out this neutron resource gap is not just a Canadian issue, but it's globally the number of available neutron beams is going down for researchers. And so we as a community started to look at what can we do as researchers in the sense that there's a, a finite amount of money a researcher can ask for through traditional means. With a little push from Bruce Golan at McMaster, we started looking at the potential of a compact accelerator-driven neutron source, or a CANS. We got some funding to do a bit of a feasibility study, and we were able to put together a conceptual design report with the intention of actually building this CANS piece of equipment here in Windsor. And so this compact accelerator-driven neutron source will have multiple applications, one of which would be producing the isotope 18F, which is used in positron emission tomography, which is a cancer diagnostic. So we would be able to produce that short-lived isotope for the local hospital and even some hospitals on the periphery if need be. We would have neutron beams for materials research. And so this would be where it falls into my traditional research interests, studying the structures of cell membranes and biological assemblies. The third application, and this is the one that I, I know you want to get to, and that would be the boron neutron capture therapy, the BNCT. This neutron source that we're proposing to construct will be able to do these three different applications. What makes this project so exciting is BNCT is only approved for national health insurance in one country and one facility for that matter, and that's in Japan one facility in the world at the moment. And so that puts us into a unique and exciting position because our facility will be the first in Canada. Depending on our timeline, if everything goes as planned, we'd be first in North America. There's no other facility like this at this time in North America. And if I understand correctly, this would be one of only 14 or 15 of its kind in the world. For the boron neutron capture therapy, yeah. But the multi-purpose of our cans will actually make it a unique on the world scale just because of its utility. There are some cans that are being built for certain applications. We're trying to build something that serves a much broader user base. There must be a huge team behind the science required for this project and an even larger team behind making the BNCT project happen. Let's start on the research side. How many researchers are involved? I'm in a fortunate position where I get to sit in these podcasts and talk about it. By the actual heavy lifting, there's about a core of five or six individuals who do the heavy, heavy scientific lifting for the cans, in particular, the neutron source itself and the instrument design. As for scientific broader team, we've got about 120 researchers from across Canada who are engaged in terms of helping dictate the scientific directions and helping garner support at their local institutions within their provinces, because to put the full funding package together for this particular initiative, this isn't done as a single institution or even a single province. 
the application we have has 18 Canadian universities spread across a number of provinces. We'll have matching asks in six provinces. What we're doing here is truly a pan-Canadian initiative. Why should it be in Windsor? Is it just you guys saw the opportunity, took the reins and said, let's do this? Or is there something specific to Windsor that makes it an ideal location? There's a lot of advantages to Windsor for a user facility. I'm going to talk a bit more about the materials research applications just for the moment. Because the idea is with these neutron scattering facilities, the beam time is awarded on scientific merit. And there was always this idea of reciprocity when the Canadian Neutron Beam Center was operating. We had Canadian researchers going to the U.S. to do measurements. We had U.S. researchers coming to the Canadian facilities. You go to the location that had the instrument that best helped answer your scientific question. Windsor is uniquely situated. We're very, very close to the Detroit airport. And so having international researchers come and participate in experiments and so on, it's very easy. So from a user facility, which I envision this facility to be, that's the intention, it is, it's very ideally suited. There's a lot of medical momentum for the BNCT in Windsor. Dr. Meng Pan was a radiation oncologist at the hospital. He is our medical champion for the BNCT. He was a participant at the IAEA technical meeting for updating the uh, international documentation and guidelines for BNCT. And so there's a medical driving force as well. The PET scanning, the isotope production, there's also a need in Windsor. We currently source our isotopes from a different city, and there's advantages to having it locally. And one of which became apparent during the pandemic. Windsor was one of the hardest hit cities because of the border and the workers associated with the greenhouses, etc. And there's advantages to being self-sustaining as a city like ours, where you don't necessarily want daily transport between, say, Windsor and London, if not necessary, in those kind of circumstances. I'm not an isolationist or anything, but... I think it was quite obvious during the pandemic that there are advantages if, if the need being, you can be self-sufficient on your own as a city. We hope you're enjoying today's show and want to take a moment to let you know this podcast and the next Great Big Ideas Summit are in support of McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. If you're interested in learning more about Mac Kids and supporting the great work they do, please go to hamiltonhealth.ca slash maccids. That's M-A-C-K-I-D-S. Let's get back to the show. There is a geographic reality that Windsor, for lack of a better term, is isolated. It's what, a three-hour drive from London, the next largest city? Is it three or four hours? Actually, it's only two, but coincidentally, that's the half-life of ATF. There you go. And it's going down that path. The half-life of the isotope that you would be producing is two hours. Yep. So it's not something that can be transported easily. It would have to be done quickly. So it's something that would put Windsor even more so on the cancer research map. Do you think that Windsor could conceivably become another Chalk River to a degree? So Chalk River does a lot of stuff. It wasn't just their reactor. And they still are leaders in the much broader nuclear industry. I wouldn't say that we would be putting a facility together to rival the largest national lab in the country. 
But what we are putting together will be world class and rival anything that other institutions in Canada and even in North America would have in terms of scientific infrastructure. So if everything goes according to plan, what are next steps and do you hope to have an announcement in 23? The hope is at least the applicant team will know the outcome of the funding call in 2023. If everything goes as planned, the way I'm hoping, we will be hot commissioning, and that means we'll actually have it turned on in 2031-ish. And that's a little ambitious. It's also realistic. These things take time. It's going to be a greenfield construction, so that comes with advantages, but it also comes with the time aspect where you have to take that greenfield to your end vision. But it's going to be one heck of a ride. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's been a great ride so far, and I look forward to its conclusion. If you don't mind, I'd like to take another detour in our conversation. Do you think academic scientists and universities have a responsibility to focus as much on commercialization as they do on innovation research? This is a conversation that I've had a number of times. You need both types, but it shouldn't be mandated. I have a few reasons for this, one of which, when you're doing research for industry in the typical sense, often what you're doing are short-term projects that have short-term solutions, which is good. These are needed. I'm not saying that they're not. But what gets missed is those blockbuster discoveries and those transformative innovations that occur in curiosity research. You need both. Because the ROI for the immediate research for industry, in the grand scheme of things, it's modest, but it's quite fast. You get a blockbuster discovery that you didn't know was coming. You're looking at a cool system, and turns out that that cool system has unique properties that, in a generation, lend itself to the computers we carry in our pockets, our cell phones, our computers. At the time of the discovery of those materials, they didn't know what it was going to be used for. They didn't care. It was cool, had interesting properties. They studied it, and eventually its application became apparent. And now it's, I hesitate to put a dollar amount on what the tech industries were. You need both. The term mandate, I don't agree with. And I'm okay with that. I personally feel that there has to be a greater degree of cooperation between industry and academia to further mutual goals. And there's one thing to have it in-house and be paying salaries. It's another thing to sponsor research and hopefully be the recipient of some really cool things that come out of that. I get there are inherent conflicts if they are not managed as they should be. When I was in grad school, it was frustrating for me. I was just in history, but there was still this division and disdain to commercialize in the academic environment. And I think that is changing. And again, personal opinion, thank God it's changing. But I would love to see a greater sense of partnership between the business side of what we're doing and the research side of what we're doing, because we could be firing in all cylinders. It's like taking a camera lens. We're almost in focus. And if we could just tweak it a little bit, we would be so much further ahead. So there's a difference between a researcher coming up with something cool and commercializing it 
and doing R&D for industry. Absolutely. I agree 100% with what you're saying. I do have a question for you, though. If we don't have universities doing fundamental basic research, who's going to come up with that next blockbuster? So this is my argument why there does need to be both in the academy, because it's risky. You cannot blame industry for not wanting to take some of those financial risks where they have to answer to shareholders. They can't wait for 40 years to see that ROI. It's nobody's fault. It's the way it is. You need all types. Is the research that we're talking about with the BNCT, how is that potentially going to impact the Ontario life sciences community or for that matter, the Canadian life sciences community? BNCT, it's going to be huge in terms of patient treatment. If you can extend life for that matter, put a cancer into remission, there's economic benefits to that. It's the healthcare system that receives that benefit, but that's still a benefit. The same with isotope production. If we can produce it in a meaningful way and reduce the cost associated with that pet tracer for the hospital, that is a reduced cost to the healthcare system overall and a benefit to Ontario. The materials research standpoint, the instruments can be used to study new battery technologies. They could be the source of that next blockbuster discovery. So that will drive industry in Canada into the future that we don't necessarily know what that blockbuster will be. It just, now we have the tools to look for it. The other instrument, the imaging, there are direct applications for industry now. For example, we have a local x-ray company, Proto. We could be a value-added service for what Proto does by allowing them to take measurements on our instruments. And so there's a regional economic benefit to a, a local company and employer. It's hard to put dollar amounts, but I see nothing but benefits for the region, Ontario and Canada, both economically, but also scientific reputation. Also down the road helps attract the best researchers and engineers and so on. Hi, I'm Jim Wilson, and you're listening to the NGB Ideas podcast. I'm not a scientist. You've picked up on that, I'm sure. And I would never suggest I will ever develop anything other than an absolute basic understanding of this project. But I am trying to get my arms around it. And I might be bouncing around here, but I read that your lab group's interest is in the structure of cellular membranes. How is that related to BNCT? Or is it? It's actually not directly related to the BNCT. Now, we could go down a path where you deliver a boron compound using a lipid nanoparticle, and that would definitely be in my group's wheelhouse. But the meat and potatoes of my research group studying the structure, we use a instrument called a small angle neutron scattering. And that just turns out to be one of the materials instruments that'll be at our CANS facility. It's one of the workhorse instruments for material science the facilities in the U.S. are three to four times oversubscribed for these instruments. So building one here, we could help alleviate the pressure of at least the SANS ecosystem by having it and, you know, attract great science from abroad to come and take the measurements here in Canada. So it's an academic opportunity. It's a business opportunity to a degree. It's a health opportunity. And hopefully it'll be announced in the not too distant future. Yeah, and I'm going to throw with pseudo-business opportunity. I am going to put in a shameless plug. Please do. 
there's going to be an opinion piece in a white paper around FDG production. So this is the tracer that's used for PET scanners. We're putting in a white paper and an opinion piece in the Canadian Health Technologies. It'll probably appear June or July of 2023, but its focus is on isolated cities like Windsor or like a city like Sudbury where you have a, a large population, but the next closest city is quite distant away. And so there's a small business case to be made on how you can provide a service like that to these kinds of cities without having to bring it in. The short-lived medical isotopes. Yes. And isolated centers. Exactly. Thank you for that. I'd like to go down a different path for a bit, and perhaps an easier path, certainly for me. What do you think has been your best mistake in your career so far? Going into university to be a high school chemistry teacher, because that's what I entered in, chemistry and education. That is the degree path to being a high school teacher. But had I not done that and had not gone to Rock University to pursue that, I would have never met Thad and probably not have the career trajectory that I currently have. So it worked out. Yeah. What would you say is the best piece of advice you've ever been given, personally, professionally? So this goes back to trying to figure out grad school and what the most appropriate program would have been to enter. My supervisor had stressed, you want to go into a program that has a natural home department. And so this was the advice of not going into a hybrid type grad program. Do a chemistry degree or do a physics, but don't try to find that middle ground that when you leave and you're out looking for jobs, there's no obvious fit on paper for you. We could debate the merits of whether you have the skills or competencies required for those jobs, but you need to get that interview. And to get that interview, having things very clear on your CV is helpful. And I took that advice. I have an awesome job, so I have to believe that advice was good and sound. Is that the advice you would offer to any students who may be listening to our conversation? Or would you offer other advice like... Don't take your grades too seriously or don't forget to enjoy life. Grades aren't everything. I was a B, B plus student. The other piece of advice I was given, and it ties right into this, you're no good to me kicked out of the program. And the meaning of that was work in the lab, do what you got to do, but you also have to make sure you maintain the grades to stay in the program. And that was his exact words as you're no good to me kicked out of the program. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on your career to date, and you've got many years of runway left, was there a defining moment when you knew you were on the right path? Like you went, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be? When I got my own research group, not when I got the faculty position, but when I actually got my own students. I have great students. I've had great students. I just had two PhDs graduate and leave in the past six months, and I have a, a awesome up-and-coming cohort of masters and PhD students. That's the best part of the job. That's what tells me, yeah, I'm in the right place and doing the right thing. I enjoy coming in and interacting and working with them every day. Everyone that I've asked that question has always said it's about the other people around me. That's what makes it special. Science is a social activity. You can't do science in isolation. Looking back, are there any setbacks that you've experienced that almost blew you off course, just threw you right off your game? And if so, how did you recover? One of the motivations for going to grad school was to get that job at the Canadian Neutron Beam Center in Chalk River. 
I had alluded to being able to quote unquote live at home. And then when the writing was on the wall, they would be shutting the reactor down and disbanding the CNBC. My career aspirations did have to pivot from being an instrument scientist to using my degree for something else. But it was a reality of the situation. It was disappointing, but I wouldn't necessarily say it kicked me right down. But that was a real reflection point. What direction do you want to go? In my mind, my path is now gone. Everyone has a bucket list. What's on yours? I actually got to check one of the boxes off my bucket list, and this is one of what you would call a humble brag. I was able to give a seminar at Oxford University this past fall. Really? Which is something even as a student I had really wanted to do. I had visited Oxford when I was in Europe as a student. And it's just like, that would be really cool that someday I would be able to just give a department seminar at the university. And I gave one in the biochemistry department last fall. Wow, congratulations. That is very cool. Thank you. It was really exciting. But realizing if this attempt isn't successful, not give up and see one built in Canada eventually. What is it you're most proud of? My students. They work hard. They play hard. It's just an absolute blast. When I ask that question, I watch people light up. And you just lit up like a Christmas tree there. That's great to see. We've talked about the potential economic spinoffs of the BNCT. And in my previous interview with Dr. Lisa Porter at the University of Windsor, she was doing a great job of business development for the region. There's so much cool stuff going on in Windsor and other, I'll call it lesser known life sciences hubs across Canada. Part of the mission of this podcast is to help shine a light on it. And I really appreciate you taking the time to give us your thoughts on this very cool project. I really hope that it goes down the path that you've got it aiming at and on the time frame that you've outlined. We end every one of our podcasts with one question, and I think we've been talking about it for the last 40 minutes. What is the next great big idea on your horizon? Like you said, we've been talking about it. It would be realizing the compact accelerator neutron source and the BNCT and the other capabilities that it's have. To take it from a conceptual design to a user facility, that's on my horizon. That's the next big thing. Thank you for this conversation and good luck on landing the BNCT. This has been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been a blast. That was Dr. Drew Markhart at the University of Windsor. You can find out more about Drew and the Laboratory for Advanced Biomembrane Research at dmarquart.ca. That's D-M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T dot C-A. And you can follow them on social at uwinbiophysics. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Persaud. You can follow us on social at LabOccupier and you can reach me via email at jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. We hope you like what we're doing and will appreciate you promoting us online with the hashtag NGBIdeas. On a final note, don't forget to check out www.nextgreatbigideas.com to find out more about Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit this October. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>